text for today after all that zimis is Mark 3, 20 through 35. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, and, uh, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over, and he began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. If Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. The end is come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent someone to call him. The crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. All right, so we have a week four out of five of, I don't know, Jesus, the messianic secret and uh, identity. And last week I uh, ended with a bit of a teaser. Maybe I hear it was a little too quick, but it was a breakdown of um, Jesus's interaction with the scribes on the question of whether he was able to forgive sin. And uh, I teased it at least last week as, about the, as an example of the question, why does Jesus speak in parables? Now, the point was, and uh, I don't know, maybe you'd recall better if I, I didn't move through it so quick, but Jesus has this opportunity to give a very clear and straightforward answer. Uh, I don't know what, I can... Uh, forgive the guy's sin because I have the power to heal him and watch this, I'm going to heal him and bam, uh, we're off to the races. Or uh, uh, Pharisees, guess what? Uh, Bad news for you. I'm actually the guy. I'm in the embodiment of God. And so for me to forgive and or heal uh, is well within my purview. But Jesus doesn't do any of that. Uh, Instead of saying, no, uh, look, y'all, I'm God in the flesh. He engages the question in this like complex and really indirect manner. Is it easier to forgive or uh, to heal uh, or forgive sins? Watch this, I'm going to heal this guy. If I can do that, isn't it reasonable to conclude that I have the power to forgive? And if only God can forgive, well, you all fill in the blanks. Now, uh, as Dale pointed out, uh, and as I kind of talked, this mirrors uh, an interpretive kind of practice that would have been common for uh, scribes and for Pharisees and for folks who uh, thought about how to interpret the law and scripture in the Hebrew tradition. And as I pointed out, uh, Greek speakers who had some knowledge of rhetoric would have loved the idea that uh, there's a way of talking to folks that has the audience fill most of the stuff in. But regardless of what you think, you know, one of those is going on here, both of those are going on here, they're the same thing. The big thing I want you to take away from that teaser is this. You only get an implied answer from Jesus And the implied answer from Jesus doesn't really get him off the hook for saying he's God. Those are the two basic problems. One, Jesus won't say directly who he is. And the main theory or theme we've had for why Jesus does that is he doesn't want to kind of 
you know, give up the secret too early because it had put him in danger. But anyone who had the requisite training and thinking about, I don't know, uh, traditions of interpretation, be they Greek or be they Hebrew, would have been able to demonstrate very easily that Jesus was claiming he was God, albeit only indirectly. So, you know, doesn't really solve the problem we've been talking about over the next last uh, couple of weeks about the messianic secret. But I don't know, the thing I want you all to focus on, and I've driven this theme pretty consistently, is like, this is not a straightforward, winsome, good evangelical answer. It's a kind of convoluted argument that relies on technical expertise by an audience to fill in a bunch of stuff when a simple answer could have been possible. So here's the thing, there's, there's more than that, okay? As we're going to start going through Mark and start thinking about what this has to do with talking in parables, you'll find that this is the shtick that goes throughout the whole gospel. So there's this shtick, the, I don't know, persistent pattern like we talked about a couple of weeks ago that links, uh, it happens a few times in the passages that we skipped over. It happened last week, it's happened today in three or four places in three, and then uh, it's going to happen in the, in the section we're looking at for today. And there's the similar form in this shtick, and the form is ready. Jesus shows something, the Pharisees dispute it, and then Jesus answers them by telling a riddle, joke even, in some instances. Okay, we're going to see this cycle repeat three or four times, including today. So, for example, in chapter 2, Jesus shows that he'll eat with sinners and tax collectors. The Pharisees are all like, how dare he? And what does Jesus say? He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not for the righteous, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, for sinners. So he doesn't say, well, look, guys, I'm meeting with everybody because I'm extending the universal mission of, of the idea of Israel, which can include everyone for the sake of establishing a kingdom which is founded in righteousness or whatever. We might imagine that he ought to say, he tells a riddle about doctors and who deserves the doctors. Uh, I don't know, show uh, John's disciples are fasting and uh, people come and ask Jesus and his disciples why, why they're not fasting. And Jesus, uh, you know, in response to what the Pharisees ask, sort of tells them, what does he tell me? He tells them a story about what? Wedding parties and wineskins. Right? How can the guests of a bridegroom fast while he's with them? No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away. But like, I don't know. You know, we've had like a thousand, two thousand years of interpretation that teach us what these things are supposed to mean for us. Imagine what this would have meant for the audience who was like, hey, Jesus, why, you know, why are you doing that? Well, let me tell you a story about wineskins and wedding parties. You know, like, think about it from the perspective of the audience that's, that's listening and hearing. And I don't know, like, again, it's not like a, uh, I don't know, a folksy uh, carpenter telling a salvific yarn that grabs hearts. Something else is going on here that's hard for us to see unless we really kind of interpret what Jesus is doing with it. And I don't know, like the, it was like a throw off comment the first time, but I don't know, the more I think about it, it's a lot like uh, choosing which fish to gut and which to throw back. Parables seem to be a way of speaking this ha- that has this effect that they harden the hearts of some and they invite others in. And that's interesting. And that's something we ought to think about what Jesus is doing it. And it happens again for like almost the whole of chapter three, which we're not going to talk about today. So like, Jesus heals on the Sabbath, and people ask, why are you healing on the Sabbath? And Jesus has the story about the purpose for the Sabbath. And then, of course, it happens in our text for today, which we're going to dig in on a little bit. So, uh, verse 20, Jesus enters a house, and a a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Family heard about this. They came to take charge of him. They said, he is out of his mind. 
So, okay, we've got the same theme we've talked about for a couple weeks here, uh, not to fixate on it, but the crowd's gathered, and we all know that there's so many of them that the scripture's pointing out that it makes it impossible for, the Jesus, or for Jesus and the disciples to do something. So his family, uh, and spoiler alert, that's going to uh, become important in the question, have you lost your mind, uh, you know, uh, kind of come to uh, uh, Jesus and um, they are, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe they want to eat with him, I don't know, but the crowd is certainly gathered around him and, um, you know, it, it, it makes it impossible for Jesus to really talk to anyone, so his family's like, maybe he's lost his mind, and then, of course, the Pharisees hear this, and what do they say? They say, he's possessed by uh, Beelzebub, by the prince of de- demons, uh, and that he's driving out demons uh, based on his authority of, I guess, being possessed by Beelzebub. Now, this uh, interaction, the crowd's there, his family's there, uh, the disciples, the ones who are near to him, I guess is what the scripture says in that, in that first part, um, is an interesting interaction. And uh, I don't know, like the accusation that Jesus is, uh, uh, I don't know, an extension of the devil is loaded for any number of reasons. But you'd imagine if we reconstruct what the Pharisees were thinking, they think, hey, we've seen this guy cast out demons a bunch and we know that he's done it. So by what authority or what power has he casted out demons? I imagine that it must be that he himself is possessed by a demon. Okay, so that's kind of what the Pharisees are thinking. And then uh, we've got that kind of set up, and then the scripture says something that is, I just think, mind-bogglingly fascinating and super interesting in Mark 2.23. You have it right there. Jesus calls the Pharisees over, and what does the text say? He begins to speak to them in parables. Now, this is a remarkable moment. First of all, Jesus is not answering a question that is directly pointed towards him. He's kind of like reaching out into the crowd and soliciting an engagement with hostile scribes. He's not waiting for them to ask him a question. He's saying, hey, guys, you know, I I bet you're thinking. And and then he starts to argue with them. And there's another element of the idea of showing and telling here, although this one's really subtle. See, Jesus is not just demonstrating by that call that he has power over demons. Who is Jesus showing that he has power over? The scribes. Like his call is effective in bringing those guys over. So there's a little bit of a show here. Like Jesus is demanding an audience from the scribes. He's showing. And in fact, they're admitting with their uh, feet by coming over that he has power over them. Okay, so that's kind of remarkable. It's Jesus calling out. He's talking in parables. He's actively soliciting engagement with the scribes. But the third remarkable thing is that parable part. Okay, so this is the first time in what is presumably the earliest gospel, that the text not only says what Jesus is saying, but it says how he's saying it. So to say he's speaking in parables is kind of a big deal. It characterizes the way that he's delivering the message. And of course, Matthew does it a bunch of times too. Uh, And it happens uh, in the gospel of Mark a bunch. In the chapter we're about to look at, it happens seven times. So whatever it is that Mark's trying to tell us, this word parable is super important. Okay, repeated a bunch and tells us something about how Jesus is talking to people. Now, as you might guess, parable is, as I rub my hands, a fascinating word. So, uh, I don't know, it's uh, composed of para, which is like close or beside, and bole, which is like to cast. So we get the figure, like we get, and we've been taught through innumerable Sunday school coloring sheets that have interpreted parables for us, that a parable is something like a story that you cast alongside another story and it conveys a message 
not quite directly, but it does it by being like the thing that it's talking about. So you're casting a story alongside another story and allows you to talk about something indirectly. So we're not really talking about fasting here. We're talking about wineskins or weddings, or we're not really talking about healing here. We're talking about the purpose of the Sabbath. And they kind of illustrate the point nicely, don't they? Except they don't. Right? They only illustrate the point nicely for us because we've had them explained to us over time and that they, we've, they've kind of formalized into a doctrine. And, and we think that if you want to convince someone stories are great and they help illustrate a point, which is true, but this isn't just really good evangelism because when we look at these on a closer look and think about these stories as they might have first been received by that audience, uh, they are, end up being not only a lot more complex and difficult to unpack and there's a lot more in them, than we might imagine. But the other thing that the gospel tells us is every time Jesus tells one of these parables, it either hardens hearts or invites hearts. But the way that the gospel of Mark presents the idea of a parable is that a parable has an effect and the effect is usually to kind of polarize people, either to draw them to Jesus or to bring them uh, into opposition with Jesus. So a parable is more than we at least normally think about it, but there's more than this because Before the term parable meant for us like a story you put alongside a story, in the time that the gospel says Jesus speaks in parable, the primary use of the term parable did not mean to speak in a metaphor or an analogy. That's actually something that's developed over time. It's kind of something Jesus branded for himself. It's something that the Christian tradition grabs up and says a parable is a representation of a thing or a story that helps us cast alongside it. And admittedly, there were uses of it in ancient rhetoric, but it's kind of a minor use. The main way people would have thought about, and the main thing that would have brought to mind, if you use the word parable to cast alongside, are you ready? The main thing it would have meant is to throw yourself into danger. It's the word that you would have used if you were, I don't know, rowing a ship and you rowed into battle and you were alongside the other ships so that you were fighting them, you were paraboling yourself. You were casting yourself aside. Or if you talked about like two armies lined up and they're about to run at each other and get it on, that moment of contact when one was alongside the other, that was a parable. So the meaning of parable here is something that's a lot different than the way we've come to think about it in retrospect. It meant something like putting yourself in danger, casting yourself alongside someone, throwing yourself into the battle. And let's just say, as my kids, and undoubtedly if you've studied with your kids or remember uh, you know, back far enough to English language arts class, if you look at context clues, there's a lot of this sense of a fight going on, isn't there? Like he's calling out to the Pharisees, the Pharisees are hostile, they're coming over, and he is like clashing with or putting himself alongside the Pharisees. So if you doubt the kind of reading that parable is about entering into a conflict or laying yourself on a line, as the teachers say, look at the context clues. They're very clear here. All right, so third is, think about what that means when you think about the content. All of a sudden, there's this whole thing. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. And the end has come. Now look, using context clues, this is really weird, isn't it? Using context clues, the idea that What is at stake here is can Satan stand alongside himself and cast himself out? Why is Jesus talking about what creates satanic unity anyway? Unless Ozzy Osbourne got to him with his back masking, it's hard to understand why the main theme for Jesus' talk here is what creates better unity with Satan. Instead, Jesus is addressing this question of authority. 
Satan, I don't know, I guess Satan could withdraw from a situation on his own, but he can't drive himself out. We need to be driven out by something. So Jesus is making this point that we need to, uh, when we think about what's going on and when he casts out demons, he's doing it by force. He's doing it by authority. He's doing it by, and because he's in conflict with and in battle within, not only Satan, but the kingdom of evil. So Jesus is demonstrating himself being in this kind of struggle, exactly the kind of struggle that we might imagine with the parable. And to kind of put not too fine a point on it, he says, you can't enter a strong man's house without tying him up and then you can plunder it. So Jesus is saying, here's a parable about me in parable with Satan, driving out Satan, establishing the kingdom of God, being in a power struggle, not only with Satan, but with who here? The Pharisees. So Jesus is telling us a parable about this elaborate power struggle, which is both about a struggle with Satan and at the same time, a struggle with the Pharisees in which he is stepping alongside both of them into battle, throwing himself into danger, risking his identity and driving out the forces of evil by being Jesus, by showing and demonstrating who he is. And it should not go without noting here that he talks about it as what? As going into someone's house. And I I don't know. I mean, I'm sure Trey can, in the uh, remainder of the, of the discussion time, talk to us about the metaphor of Israel as the house of the Lord. But Israel is connected with and understood as a kind of house. So when Jesus says, look, I'm going to engage in battle, y'all, and I'm going to do it alongside the Pharisees and in the face of the Pharisees, and I'm going to talk about casting out Satan, and I'm going to talk about my authority, and I'm going to talk about plundering a house, he may well be suggesting that what he's about to plunder is the house of Israel. Parabole. He is throwing himself into battle and putting himself in danger. He is parabolosing with his parable. He is actively entering the battle space with the Pharisees for the sake of standing alongside them and engaging them. He is putting himself at risk. Now they're saying Jesus has an impure spirit, and he, you know, he like in, we saw previously, he uh, he knows what they think, and so that's why he thought the fighting was about. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't directly say to them, he is God here. Again, like the whole uh, repetition of this idea of Jesus telling a riddle that implies he's God. What does he say? He says that you all would say that I'm aligned with Satan or that I have an impure spirit or that you all would even make a defense of your practice as scribes by attributing to me an impure spirit. What does he say it is? He says it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is the very concrete and direct implication of Jesus saying, by blaspheming against me, you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Jesus is establishing his equivalence with the Holy Spirit. To do that to Jesus is to suggest that you do it to the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, very gutting line, truly I tell you, people could be forgiven if their sins of every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. So Jesus is saying here, he's throwing himself into this battle against the Pharisees, against the powers of evil and the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And he says, if you doubt a minute, or if you suggest that it's Satan that drives a minute, you have not only sinned against him, but you have sinned against the Holy Spirit itself. All right, now just to make this even more confusing and kind of complex of a story, at that very moment, Jesus' mother and brothers arrive. They stand outside. They send someone in to call him, and there's the crowd. And they said, hey, tell them your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Now, what's the notable thing? What do Jesus' mother and brothers do or tell the crowd to do? 
just like Jesus did to the Pharisees. They call him. They say, they try and create power over or authority over Jesus. They try and tell him to stop teaching, to come out and, I don't know, do what mom says. Now, if you tie the whole thing together, it's about this call. Jesus makes a call to the Pharisees and they come over. He throws himself into battle with them. Jesus' mother and brothers make a call to him. They say, hey, Jesus, time to stop preaching. You know, why don't you come and have dinner or whatever the thing is? And he says, no, I'm not going to do it because it's my family that's around me here. Anyone that is gathered here is my family. And you tie all those things together and ask yourself, what the heck is going on here? And all these different overlapping concepts of a parable is a battle, a call, a way of controlling someone, a way of talking about them, a way of saying what you know, showing and telling the messianic secret. I mean, it's like a bunch to sort out. Well, okay, so let's just say if you read closely, I think there's an amazing argument about showing, telling, and identity in all this, especially if you pay attention to who's calling and who's responding. So Jesus calls the Pharisees and they come and argue with him. They are, uh, they say they're not subject to him because he has no authority. They're scribes and the scribes are the folks who write, read, and interpret the law. They tell him that he has no sway over them, but what do they do? They show that he has power over them by coming over to him and responding to him and engaging in this kind of parable conversation with them. And if you flip back to the end, Jesus' mother and brothers, the folks with whom he has a family relationship, the kind of thing that makes up your identity, I guess, well, they come and call Jesus, and what does he do? He says, oh, no, that's not my family. My family are any of the folks who gather around and listen to me. There's this idea deep in the roots of Judaism about the relationship between calling, naming, and power. And the basic idea, one we see repeated in all kinds of myths and stories and in the Gospels, is that if you can name something and call it, you have power over it. Now, it's been a point of dispute here a little bit at Resurrection Church around whether or not, I don't know, I guess the easiest way of putting it is, is Yahweh God's name. But I continue to maintain that Yahweh is not a name. It's a response to a question by a human being who wants to figure out what the name of God is. And God says, I'm not a specific thing with a name. I am that I am. I am the principle of being itself. I always have been. I always will be. And in fact, that I have no name defines my character. My identity is not reducible to a proposition. I am the one that exceeds even the possibility of being entered into or named in language. Now, work with me here. What is the main descriptor that Mark uses to talk about Jesus' enemies in these three chapters? It's the Pharisees, but what does he call them all the time? The scribes. The ones who codify and write down the word. The ones who define the character of what are appropriate propositions about the character of God. The ones who write down the law and write down words about God. They're the ones who have sought in a really weird way to have power over God by naming him. And in fact, when they come to Jesus in these instances, what do they do? They say, we know on the basis of our expertise that this is not God. He does not match what we have written down about the tradition. He does not match what we imagine that God would be like. He violates our vision, our code, our propositions, our theology, our stories, our our interpretations. None of those things match up with or culminate in Jesus because our word says that that is not Jesus. And in response to that, Jesus says, I am the word. 
Human language is finite. It's limited. It's not up to the task of naming and capturing God. We can't get this stuff out simply by telling it. It has to be shown. And because God exceeds the capacity of language to capture things, the created cannot come to grasp the essence or identity of the creator. Instead, we need to be lowered down through the roof by our friends and by our faith in order to have an encounter with them. That is what I mean when I say there's not a truth about Jesus. Not that there's not truth. It's that it's not that there's a truth about Jesus. Jesus is the truth. We can ham-handedly gesture at this character is truth, but no proposition could be up to the task. Words don't do Jesus justice. He is the word. That is what I mean when I say that the truth is not a proposition, but a person. It is in the encounter with Jesus, in Jesus showing who Jesus is. It is in meeting him on the beach and deciding to put your net down that we come to see him. Why does Jesus speak in parables? Because to speak in direct propositions would be to put him at a disadvantage relative to the terms that we use about him. Beth's got this old adage, don't put God in a box. Guess what? Language is the most powerfully descriptive and deceptive box. It promises us knowledge of things by communicating principles and propositions, but I mean nothing and particularly no proposition could ever substitute for the power and presence of the person who is Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Why does Jesus speak in parables? Because he wants to gut us. And I mean that in all sense of the words he desires, that instead of seeking our own set of meaningful facts about him that confirm who we are and how we think that we use to take comfort in what we're already doing, Jesus wants us to empty ourselves out to be fully, attentively open to his presence in a way that confounds the power of our words. He wants us to empty ourselves in experiencing his face. He wants us to stand on the shore with our dripping wet nets in hand and put them down and say, yes, Lord, here am I. I had other things to do and they don't matter anymore. If you encounter the face of Jesus, it ought to change you. It ought to make you different. It ought to make it, as T.S. Eliot says, that you cannot go back by the other road. Jesus talks in parables not only to kind of avoid the traps of language, to demonstrate that language has its limits too, but also Jesus wants to talk in parables because he wants to enter alongside battle with us. And just like Jacob, whose hip has to be knocked out of joint for him to become Israel, we too enter into the battle with Jesus, not to be slain, but instead to be crucified and to be remade so that in being and making and having our hip point out of joint, we might be something new. We enter into the parable with Jesus so that he, when he puts himself on the line and we put ourselves on the line, we are both, at, we are individually at risk of being changed, of being made different, of this understanding that we are connecting to something that is bigger than us and that ought to reconfigure who we are and how we understand ourselves. That's what it means to enter into a parable with Jesus. Yes, he is alongside us. Yes, we are called into battle with him. And yes, part of that battle is with ourselves and it should not and it cannot leave us unchanged. You can't go back to casting your nets. You can't go back to the safety and certainty of family or community or whatever it was that made you certain of yourself that you use the idea of Jesus to baptize or make you comfortable in. Because if Jesus does not change you, maybe you're doing the parable wrong. I closed the other day with Bonhoeffer. This time I'm going to close with a little Elliot. Signs are taken for wonders. We would see a sign. The word swaddled with uh, the word within a word, unable to speak a word, swaddled with darkness and the juvescence of the year, 
came Christ the tiger. The tiger springs in the new year and devours us. Think at last we have not reached conclusion when we stiffen in a rented house. Think at last we have not made this show purposelessly. We think so much about Jesus as a buddy or Jesus who tells us that what we already believe is right, a Jesus who provides us certainty. I love that Elliot calls Jesus a tiger. A buddy tells you how great you already are. A buddy tells you how awesome and money and whatever it is you already are. But a tiger eats you. A tiger devours you. A tiger brings you into battle and remakes you. And that, at least in part, I think, as we'll go through the rest of this series, is what a parable ought to do. It's not quite a proposition. It's a story that entails a battle and a battle that remakes you, that invites you to be transformed in witnessing and in showing and in finally in being transformed by the person of Jesus instead of taking comfort and talking about what we already knew or what we already thought or what we already had the right words to say. Amen. Questions or talk?